Well, we've been working through uh, the book of Exodus for a long time now and have come to uh, the section on the tabernacle. And it's a section that is often skipped over, but is actually critically important to understanding Israel's life with God. But as we are to that part of the, the calendar year when we are not often all together at the same time, I really want to cover this. And I don't want people to miss it if they don't have to. So I'm going to hold off on the tabernacle and instead study the Psalm of Ascents, which we know as Psalms 120 through 134, which are songs that were sung on the way to the tabernacle. So these were, as we're going to look at them over the next month or so, these were pilgrimage songs that were sung during one of the three main feasts of the year. And we've remember, we've covered this in the Book of Ordinances uh, from a month or so back, uh, you know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which connected to Passover and Pentecost and the uh, the, the Feast of Booths, and, and these feast days were when the people of God came together in Jerusalem to worship and celebrate and remember, sacrificial to what God had done for them. And these psalms were, were really tangible uh, practices, reminders really that Israel was to understand her life, see her life and her purpose and her meaning in terms of discipleship and pilgrimage, which were two things that went together. Discipleship, as we often talk about it, is the daily turning to God and learning his ways, like at the feet of a master. So it's not like uh, being in a classroom, though you can say there's aspects to that. It's not like being in, in a classroom where we're just kind of accumulating facts or, or figures or trivia about God. So it's like how you don't learn to be a carpenter by reading a book about carpentry or watching a single video on YouTube to do that. I can tell you the, the do-it-yourself or theoretical version of carpentry doesn't work because that's my version of carpentry. Uh, no, discipleship is learning to mimic the master in our character and our behavior. It's mimicry. It's learning to walk as he would have us to walk. Now, to be sure, we are absolutely the people of the book. But that book, you know, the very word of God is intended to shape us, not just to think right thoughts, as important as they are, but to walk the right walk. And we learn all of this in community. So that's why we're doing what we're doing right now in community together. It's why we sing together. It's why we confess together. You learn together with the people of God. That's how God tends to work with his spirit. But our discipleship is also a pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage because character and behavior are not ends in themselves. So the goal is not just to be a good person. That's stoicism. No, we are moving towards a goal, towards a destination. We are pilgrims headed towards seeing God face to face. And that reality grows closer with each passing moment. I mean, think about this. We are all closer to our death than we ever have been. And that motion continues, and all of us who profess faith in Christ, who belong to him, will see him face to face. And so our lives have purpose and they have shape to them because we are living right now in terms of what is coming when God redeems the world and humanity's place in it. So that's, that's what it is to live as disciples. That's what it is to live as a citizen of the kingdom or to live in light of heaven. It's life lived 
in anticipation of our face-to-face reality with, with God in the future redeemed world. Well, believe it or not, our psalm takes up that assumption and, and focuses on that. And so we are on Psalm 121 today that actually addresses a question that we face every single day and feels very appropriate for what day it is. And the question is, where does our real or true help come from? Psalm 121, I'll begin with verse one. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might see Jesus, that we might be enthralled by him, that we might be taken in by how good you are and how gracious you are and patient you are, and that we might want to turn again to you. So to that end, as we've already prayed, May the Spirit be among us that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might even be slayed in the deepest part of us, that we'd want to turn back to you and walk in your ways. We pray all of this because you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the psalmist begins by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help Come And the answer is, my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And it sounds like he's just, you know, kind of taking in the scenery, almost like a Psalm 19 sort of way, and asking a philosophical question, like we might if we were taking in the Grand Canyon or something like that. But while God's creation is incredible, and it's, it's absolutely impressive, this is actually not what the psalmist is doing at all. At this point in Israel's history, Israel was full of of pagan Canaanite worship, and most of it, if not almost all of it, was practiced on the highest geographical places, like hills and mountains. And this was in direct competition, that is, it was intentional. It was a direct competition with the worship of the true God, and thus was counterfeit worship. So, for example, Eden was on a mountain. God met with Moses, and then in turn, Israel at Mount Sinai, which itself was, as we've talked about, a symbolic new Eden. The temple in Jerusalem was on a mountain. It was in fact called the Temple Mount and it too functioned as a symbolic new Eden. And as an aside, you know, the irony about the Temple Mount is that it's actually not a very impressive mountain at all. You'd think God would choose the highest mountain in the land, but he doesn't. No, his, his power as Jesus says, or as Paul says, is made perfect in weakness. It's what he often repeated, the, the, the promise to, to elevate Jerusalem as, as the highest mountain, you know, is exactly what, what Jesus was after when he says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The other gods, however, they pursue the opposite. They want the highest mountains. They pursue a, a posture of power and strength. 
It's why the Tower of Babel, for example, and maybe you've seen this in, in you know, Sunday school materials or something like that, uh, was not an observational tower or, or a lighthouse. It didn't look like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That's kind of the Sunday school stuff I saw when I was a kid. No, it was actually a huge temple made to be a giant artificial pyramid-like mountain. It was called a ziggurat. That's the, the style of, of temple it was made. And it was an intentional false version of the mountain of Eden in pursuit of false gods. You know, and it's, it's telling that, that soon after the flood, humanity tries to remake Eden in its own image. That's what Babel is. So to give you a picture of the times of our passage, even with the good kings of, of Judah, false worship was a very real temptation. It's like what it says about King Jehoshaphat at the end of 1 Kings, and that's a great name, by the way, Jehoshaphat. It says he walked in the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So even you know when they were good and, and righteous kings, the people worship, worship both the true God and false gods too. And that's an indictment on both the kings who should have destroyed the high places and the people who actually chose to go there as well. And what you see there then is Israel as well as his kings, for all the good they did, had a split allegiance. And really, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not so different now. Though, you know, clearly the name and the form of the gods and how we worship them have changed. So, for example, Andy Crouch noted that the early church father, Justin, so this is roughly in the 100s, in his, his work, The Apology, uh, he saw four key challenges to the discipleship that this passage actually assumes. Four key things that challenged his people, so this is like 1,800 years ago, that challenged their daily repentance and turning to God. Sexual immorality, magic, wealth, and ethnic hatred. And if you just replace magic with technology, as Arthur C. Clarke would have us do, if you remember that guy, uh, you can see that, that nothing has really changed with the human heart over the last 1,800 years since, you know, Justin wrote his fourfold problem. All four things, sexual immorality, technology, wealth, and ethnic hatred are, are just broad categories. You can have a lot of subcategories there, but they're just broad categories of gods that we pursue with our minds and our hearts and our bodies in the hopes of finding happiness, comfort, satisfaction, validation, self-esteem, Respect. And there's, there's, you know, think about it this way. There's really no difference between spending hard-earned cash on a bottle of Nugenics. You know, if you're watching ESPN like I do, you know, if you spend money on Nugenics because, you know, you're a white dude in his 40s who can't handle the fact that his youth has been long gone, you know, versus paying a priest with an offering of a chicken or a goat in order to get a potion you can drink to lengthen your life, and boost your masculinity. And technology and magic, they promise the same things. They're after the same things. And while we may think that we are far too enlightened to be taken in by false gods or magic, you know, Israel never came close to worshiping as many gods as we do. They were never nearly as brutal 
as we are in our worship of those gods either. And it you know, doesn't matter if it's done in the name of Baal or in the name of respectability or freedom or lifestyle or economics. It's all the same thing in the end. And it doesn't matter if you visited a prostitute serving Ashtaroth or visited the temple of pornography online. It doesn't matter if you were a Jew who viewed Samaritans as dirty mudbloods or you see other races or immigrants as a threat to your way of life. And it doesn't matter if you sacrificed your prize bull to ensure a future for your kids or you sacrificed your nest egg to get them into elite schools. It's all the same in the end. We are a society built on sexual immorality and wealth and technology and hatred, and we have split allegiances. Just as we look to God right now, the temptation will come before this day is over to look to the hills too. And it's not helpful to deny that. In fact, it actually hurts us as the people of God to deny it. It keeps us from repentance if we aren't honest about it. And the issue is not, you know, for me, people outside the church. I mean, of course, I'm concerned for, you know, Americans at large. Of course, I love this country, but it's with the people of God that I'm concerned, and we are you know, more or less inclined to believe that our help comes from God alone or, or maybe some of these other so-called gods too. I mean, it's worth asking virtually every day, do we have a split allegiance? Now, the psalmist says, my help comes from the one who made heaven and earth. That's his answer to the question. And this is, of course, the same God who redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt and bowed himself to her. So this is a huge statement. Israel's personal God is no other than the creator God who made all things. So you really can't get any stronger help than that. And as the psalmist says, this is the same God who has always been personally good to him. So think on this, this all-powerful God, this all-knowing God has not just set his heart on a group of people, which he has, He knows each individual one of us and cares deeply about each of us. And what's more, he delights in us. And so the question, you know, where does my help really come from is, is it this God who has been faithful to me or some other God up on the hills? It is a serious question. Now, you may claim that that God is the creator God who has given you salvation. That might be the backbone of your deepest beliefs, just like it was for Israel, by the way. But do you live like it? You know, arguably, it's the defining question that is always brought out by our fears, our anger, our hostility, our desires, our frustrations, our hopes, and even our contentment. So inevitably, when I see these things in me popping up, like like frustration or anger, like when I spent a good part of two days in an airport this week that looked like I was in a football stadium that was so full, it's an indicator that maybe the hills, maybe it's the hills are what are actually running my heart. You know, if our God is the one who made all things and has set his heart on us, shouldn't we pray more akin to like what David prayed in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And even as he leads me down the aisle, to the back part of the plane where I absolutely do not want to go. Despite having an early boarding pass that I paid extra for that is seemingly useless in this moment, I will fear no evil. And upon reflection, 
Doesn't it sound ridiculous? Don't I sound so superficial and trivial? But in the moment, in the moment, especially when the moments are actually life and death moments, not moments of of personal preference, these are real questions. And notice what the psalmist says in verse three, that God will not allow your foot to be moved. And in verse five, the Lord is your keeper, your shade on your right hand that will not let the sun strike you by day or the moon by night. Now, these were traveler's worries, and it's something a pilgrim to Jerusalem would be rightly worried about. You know, most people traveled by foot, and so your footing was a big deal. So you turn an ankle or break a leg, it could seriously cost you, maybe even kill you. The sun was also a serious threat to them as they traveled as well. You know, and we complain about how draining a long road trip in the car is, or frankly, how I whined about how much time I spent in airports this week. But imagine making the trip to Birmingham, just to Birmingham, on foot. Or perhaps you have a donkey and somebody can ride a little bit and the road is unpaved. If there is even a clear road and add to that, there's no such thing as the police to ensure civil order. So it's not just that it's physically hard, which it would have been. There's also the, the danger of other people and violence. And keep in mind, as you know, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, to make a pilgrimage was to trust that God also would protect your home and property that you left behind. So this isn't just you know, trust for the road ahead. It's trust for what is behind you, too. So personally, you know, as I was going to St. Louis, you know, my prayers this week reflected both concerns. Lord, keep me safe as I travel. Lord, keep me safe in this crazy interstate town. But Lord, also protect my family as I leave them behind. I mean, how could they not reflect that? Now, you know, on such a pilgrimage like this, which they did three times a year, mind you, it's easy to become fatigued and become emotionally ill. And the ancients called that moonstroke, or we might call it lunacy today. It's the mental stress and the emotional toil that that a long, hard journey on foot can have for you with all the dangers of weather and physical threats or wild animals or wicked people. All that stuff, what they can, the accumulation of that can do to a person. And it's, you know, it's definitely different than what we face now, but it's kind of akin to what we've been doing, you know, or going through over the last, you know, several years For example, you know, a friend of mine remarked to me this past week, he's a youth pastor, and he said, you know, it's not just that that kids are always online, always comparing themselves, always being bombarded with politics and messages on how they must conform, with news headlines showing them the worst things about humanity. Their parents and their grandparents are online enduring this stuff too. Everyone is stressed out. Everyone is dealing with isolation. And even before the pandemic, that was true. Most people are tired or burned out or have just some kind of lingering feeling of exhaustion. Most people have some level of tension in their families or just have really hard or strained relationships that don't look like they may ever be fixed. There's lots of anxiety, lots of sadness and depression, lots of self-medicating strategies, whether with food or alcohol or drugs or porn or retail therapy or just death scrolling your phone. 
It's why, you know, as a church, your leadership did not want to add to your stress level right now by restarting all our programs. It's why we really want you, we really encourage you and hope that you will take use of the Sabbath for obviously for worship, but also for rest. I hope some of you take a good nap this afternoon. I'm gonna be honest, I'm going to do that. I hope some of you will too, that you can actually let go and trust that you don't have to work, that it's fine to rest in our God. You know, frankly, you know, sitting by myself in four different airports this week, I had a lot of time to people watch and most Americans look sick. Most of them look unhealthy. Most people looked angry, you know, or stressed out. And even though we are, we are wealthy, Americans look pretty rough right now. In the midst of this messed up life, the psalmist is saying God is our keeper and our guardian. But let's, but let's not put this merely you know, in terms of inward, existential, or just emotional terms about how we are feeling. You know, we're all facing very real external threats. I mean, things can break down in an instant. You know, when a gunman shows up and starts shooting, that happens all the time. You can have the most up-to-date safety precautions on your car and a wonderful insurance policy and be in a horrible multi-car accident on 65 and not see it coming. You can be a model employee, still get fired. You could take perfect care of your body and still get cancer. And despite you know, all our attempts at control, God is our actual guardian and keeper. But if God is our guardian and keeper, does that mean he won't let anything bad happen to us? Well, we read passages like this one and assume it means that if God is really our keeper, we will be protected from all these threats. But that's not right. That's not right. So the question ought to be, protect us from what exactly? You know, American Christians have often believe the lie that not only one, this world is all there is, no matter what we may confess about the life to come, but two, this life should be as comfortable as possible. I should be happy most of the time. And the psalmist is not saying God won't let us suffer, though it's what we, we want him to say. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Notice that it says in verses seven and eight that the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth, and this is important, and forevermore. And what the psalmist means is that no matter what happens to you, and he assumes horrible things can happen to you, nothing will be able to separate you from God, nothing. It's like what Paul says in this wonderful passage from Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There it is. There it is. Paul is clearly not saying that God's people won't suffer hard and even evil things. Clearly we will. And of course, if you know Paul, he suffered badly. And no one suffered like Jesus suffered. Persecution, Public nakedness, starvation, cancer, 
murder, abuse, loss of our loved ones, these are evil. They are heinous. But they are not the worst things that can happen to us. The worst thing that can happen to a human is to be separated from God. That's what death is. You know, death isn't simply the loss of your body. As bad as that is, it's the loss of life with God. That's why Paul tells his churches they were formerly dead in their sins. They were formerly separated from God, but now with Christ, they will never die. And when you see an unbeliever die, you're seeing his body finally catching up to his heart and his mind and his soul, and it is a tragedy. It didn't have to be that way. It's this separation from God that makes the worship of creation, of things like sex and wealth and technology and, and so forth, so easy and so common that we hardly notice it. We just call it life and think it's normal, but it's not. They are all symptoms of death. You know, the great evil humanity faces is not the threat of bodily harm or serious illness as bad as they are. No, those things are symptoms of a bigger problem, which is separation from God himself. So if heaven is life in God's presence, guess what hell is? Hell is life without his presence, without his love. And so many of our countrymen, you know, if given the choice, will gladly choose hell. And sometimes they do it in God's name. They will choose the hills give their full allegiance to it, even as they identify as Christians. But with Christ, you know, while these things we've been listing and what Paul goes through can be absolutely brutal, they are not the end. You know, for those in Christ, the moment of their death is the greatest moment of their life up to that point. Think about that. Up to that point, it will only get better. Even so, the big critique that you hear over and over against our God is that if he was truly good, he wouldn't let us suffer anything. And you know what? Some Christians believe that too. Now, on the one hand, it's ironic because the people who tend to make this argument usually want nothing to do with God to begin with. And so they're like, you know, teenagers who run away from home and giving their parents the finger. And and then when something bad happens to them, they blame their parents and say, Why don't you love me and give me what I want? But on the other hand, what it assumes is that true happiness and goodness is not actually found in God. It's found in our circumstances or in our material goods or our health or whatever happens to be happening right now. It's why if you ask the typical American, anybody, to describe their version of heaven, rarely is God a central part of it, if he's even there at all. No, in reality, modern American culture has the same, the same sinful impulses that the Babylonian culture had. And so what do we do? We build temples to ourselves. We want to define heaven for ourselves, and we want to have it right here, right now. But what God offers is not stuff, though there are clearly some very nice benefits to life with him. No, what God offers is himself. The point of salvation is reconciling us to God. That's what life is. Now, to be sure, that sometimes means we will enjoy comfortable circumstances, things like health and security. And frankly, as a group, you know, we we enjoy a level of prosperity that most Christians in the world do not. And if we're being honest about it, it's actually a very real snare to us. 
you know, tempting us away from God. I mean, our wealth is a hill many people will die on. You know, it's why so many people prefer the benefits of comfort to God himself and pray to and for those benefits and judge their spiritual health by them. You know, that's why the richest culture the world has ever known, ever known, shouts the loudest about God being so evil or immoral or oppressive and does so from well-secured ivory towers as it enjoys nice full bellies and climate-controlled buildings, even amongst its poor. I mean, after all, this is the first era of human history where more people die from overconsumption and rich foods and all the chronic diseases that come with our modern diet than die from starvation. It's unbelievable. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. You know, when Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God, he's not saying all these things that do happen to people don't matter. No, they do. They absolutely do. Suffering is real. We're not Hindus. Suffering is real. Cancer is evil. Slavery is evil. Abuse is evil. Racism is evil. Generational poverty is evil. Losing your home in a fire is evil. Massive car wrecks on the interstate are evil. It's just not the way things are supposed to be, and we know it. Jesus does not ask you to act like these things don't matter or to just grin and bear it. And he himself certainly did not act that way. In fact, he wept, I would say, more for these things than we do. No, our God gives us the freedom to name our suffering and gives meaning to it. Because without God, you see, suffering is meaningless. You don't hear that very often, but it's true. Without God, suffering is meaningless. It's just bad luck. It's unfortunate, sorry. That's just your lot. With our God, these things are not the end of your story. They are temporary, though they don't often feel that way, and they won't separate you from him either. No, with our God, he uses these things in ways that we cannot see or fully understand for our good and the good of others. The fear most people have like the rich young ruler, though, is that we will be separated from our stuff or our lifestyles or our health. And while I understand that fear because I struggle with it, uh, it's the wrong fear. It's the wrong fear. The fear that the psalmist addresses is losing God himself. It's the fear that when these things happen to us, God has abandoned us or changed his mind about us. Is he punishing me? Is God against me because I did that exact same sin again? Has he grown tired of me? I mean, I've grown tired of myself. Surely no one, not even God, can really love me because I can't even love myself. But that's not how God is at all. He's not like the false gods who demand payment before they promise to help you. I mean, false gods are just fickle. It's the best word I could come up with. They're fickle. They quickly change their minds about you. They use you because they never loved you at all. As Matt Smethurst said, you know, idols don't die for your sins. They leave that to you. You know, even so, we, we do fear the loss of our idols. And things most Americans pursue, just think about it. The things most Americans pursue require we die for them in order to get things that cannot satisfy us. It's giving our lives for the sake of vapor, but God in his love and his faithfulness is solid and it's unconditional. He doesn't sleep. 
His eye is always on you. He's not fickle. God wanted and he still wants life together with you. I mean, just think about this. Life together with his people is what heaven is for God too. So what does that mean for us? Well, lots of things, but let me suggest just two. First, I think we have to be upfront about the particular struggles of living in our times and that it's very a very real and ever-present temptation to replace God with things like wealth and sex and comfort and technology and hatred and security and lifestyle. I mean, I, I hesitate to break it down you know, to those categories because the reality of what we face is actually way more complex than that. I think we do well to consider that our idols, they're just way more subtle and difficult to fight than what we typically think they are and that we are at war with them all the time. You know, so for example, several years ago, I was in a conversation with a woman who made fun of people for pursuing health and fitness. And she said, you know, we're all going to die of something. Might as well just eat and drink whatever you want because you're going to die. And you know what? It, it does sound like wisdom, right? And of course, we all are going to die of something. But that's actually what false gods teach. That it's not worth fighting for anything, let alone for things like our bodies that God created or holiness, or faithfulness. We're not ever going to be perfect. And he's promised to forgive me anyway. So, man, why fight so hard, Pastor? Give me a break. I mean, no matter what the good Samaritan did, you know the parable, no matter what he did, and it was incredible in that moment, guess what? That Jew was going to die. It was going to happen eventually. You know, God never says, live however you want. Never. He says, live in light of me. And he made you and your neighbor for himself. So your body and what you do with it, which, by the way, all advertising is trying to get you to do things with your body or to your body. So your body and what you do with it matters to God. And it matters to the false gods, too. It's why they want you to pursue a life of selfish destruction. To pursue discipleship and pilgrimage is actually a beautiful thing precisely because you are pursuing how God intended life for you, even as everything about your life resists this. There will come a time, believe it or not, there will come a time when loving God is easy. And I can't wait. I can't wait. But loving him when it's really hard, like right now, I think is especially meaningful to God. Choosing him when everything is warring against your soul. Nobody will see it. It's all in your heart. Everything is warring against you and telling you not to choose him. Like a man who chooses to be faithful to his wife in, to his wife in the midst of severe temptation. It matters more than when things are easy. Second, when, when bad things happen to us, or we continue to struggle in our sin, we must fight against the temptation to believe that God is against us or is punishing us or that this is the end of our happiness. Will God discipline us? Yes, of course, and that's good. We should want that. But God does not abandon us or reject us, and that's, that's a crucial difference. In the animated movie Sing, if you remember that movie, some of those, you kids among us, um, Part of the storyline in that movie 
involves a young gorilla who wants to be a singer and his father, who is this tough giant gangster who wants his son to follow in his footsteps. And when his son makes this critical mistake that lands his father in jail and in turn admits his love for singing, I want to be a singer, the father absolutely rejects him. And it's, it's only later when the father sees his son on television and sees his talent and see how people are responding to him that he's finally proud. He's finally proud of his son and he accepts him. That's the way false gods work. That's the sort of redemption story the world believes in. That's the kind of story of reconciliation the internet is pushing. Prove your worth and then I'll love you. But not our God. He he never fails and is not dependent on us trying to make him proud. See, God is not against you. He's not waiting for you to prove yourself worthy of his healing and his love. And though it's hard to believe, he's actually with you and he's actually for you. You know, I've had lots of conversations with people who are going through unbelievably difficult circumstances that grew in their love for God and felt his presence more because of their circumstances. And of course, you know, I would never ever wish those circumstances on anyone. And yet God used those times to move those people closer to him. And don't you know, don't you know that whether in sickness or in pleasure or somewhere in between, we are all steadily moving closer to seeing him. So as people who are called to sit at the feet of the master, who know where they are going, even if we don't know the roads twists and turns, Let us trust that this world belongs to God and and nothing will be able to separate us from him. He's our true help, him. He's our true keeper, our true defender. He is our God. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are good. There is none like you. There is no God, no human so full of loving kindness and faithfulness like you. You are the covenant-keeping God who has set his love on his people, on us individually, who delights in us, even when we cannot delight in ourselves and no one else seems to delight in us, you do. Lord, may we be shaped to your ways. May we pursue them, particularly now because it's hard. May we choose your ways when everything is screaming at us, don't because you are good, because you have our best interests at heart, because you will never let us go. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.